Welcome to Grow Your Influence Tree with your host, Leonard Kim. This is the show especially for those that want to be among the top influencers of the world. We'll help you build your brand, tell the most compelling story, build your reputation and grow your audience, and attract the top clients and customers. Listen to the experts. Think like they do, and you'll be on your way. Now, here's Leonard Kim. Hey everyone, Larry Kim here, and thank you so much for tuning in this week. I apologize if I wasn't here last week and we had to do a rerun. I was out in Canada speaking at a conference about um, how do you know when it's time to go? And that was kind of like a little transition on when you need to leave a job and everything. The week before that, I was over in New York filming for a TV show. That was kind of fun, but exhausting as well. Then came back uh, came back here on Sunday, got a new car on Monday through this app called Fair. If you haven't heard of, about it, it's pretty cool. Like, you could go and subscribe with any car that you want, cancel any time you want, and I guess switch out cars basically whenever you want instead of like being forced to be stuck with the same thing for like three or five years. So I got myself a Jaguar. That was pretty fun. But hey, today we're going to be talking about something very interesting. It's how to really go out there and uh, promote yourself as a micro-influencer to go out there and get sponsorships. Now, me personally, I've got a few sponsorships in my life, but um, I maybe one or two times tried to forcefully go get some. But most of these things just kind of came to me. But we have Tina McQueen on the line right now. And Tina McQueen's really going, uh, she's a Forbes contributor. She's gone out there and has done like amazing things with her life. Um, and she really has, she owns a PR agency as well. She's really gone out there. And a lot of people have been asking her, hey, Tina, how do you go out there and get uh, how do you get influencers when you're first starting to grow your following? And I thought she would be the expert to really dive deep on this topic. But before we get into that, uh, Tina, why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks, Leonard, first of all, for having me on. Um, I love this topic. Influencer campaigns are one of my favorite topics because they can be so great when you get an authentic brand ambassador and spot-on creative or so bad and transparent and transactional um, if you don't. So it's an interesting topic, a fascinating space. I'm happy to be here to chat about it. Um, as far as my history goes, you gave a pretty good recap. Um, when I started in the influencer space, I used to work for a production company called 21st Century Pictures Group, which I still yep. collaborate with from time to time. And uh, when I was working with them seven or so years ago, our television pitches were multi-platform and social media centric when that wasn't really done before. Um, as a result of that experience, Adrian Ashley, who founded that production firm and is still a good friend of mine, invited me to participate in an influencer group before influencer marketing was really an established discipline. Um, we worked with a really wonderful social media producer at CBS named Brian Moore, who was completely ahead of his time. And um, our job was to get coverage of entertainment events like the Academy Awards and the Emmys and the Billboard Music Awards uh, to trend online on behalf of CBS Properties, The Insider, and Entertainment Tonight, and also on behalf of Vanity Fair. Um, and at that time, fun. I learned that... Micro-influencers can be really effective and sometimes more so than celebrity or, you know, macro-influencers, major influencers, because of their ability to orchestrate voices in a sort of positive feedback loop. And also, there's a level of authenticity with micro-influencers that's hard to uh, replicate with celebrities, where a lot of those types of campaigns seem really transactional. Um, For example, like a brand gives an influencer money to take a picture showcasing their watch. Um, so since that time, I've, uh, as you said, launched my own company, Kindred PR, which works to orchestrate not only the voices of influencers on their own accord, but also in conjunction with brands 
Um, and I work with a partner production company in Los Angeles called The Machine, which takes a more consumer-driven approach to video brand activations that we're calling consumer-valued content, which we see as evolving the traditional television commercial. Um, I've also advised Marie Claire on developing out an influencer affiliate strategy with both micro and macro influencers. And I'm currently advising a company called Cosign that's working to help influencers monetize their followings by making images shoppable on social, um, which brings us to what we're here to talk about today. Um, as a micro-influencer, how do you get brand attention to monetize your following? Cool. So I know for me, like a lot of the brands just came up to me and said, hey, Leonard, you have a pretty big social media following. We want to pay you for X, Y, Z. But I, I mean, that usually doesn't happen until I, I think the first one I got was maybe when I was like two years into the game and had like maybe 20, 30,000 followers, which I guess is on the micro level. But a lot of the people out there, they don't really have that like instantaneous kind of like success where people just come to them kind of like how I did, how I was mm -hmm. able to like kind of get it. So. What what would you do if you were a micro-influencer? Like, what would you define as a micro-influencer first? Yeah, um, a lot of the micro-influencers that we work with have followings that are between, you know, 5,000 on the lower end to even in, up to about 100,000, um, I would say, would be defined as, as a micro-influencer. Um, and it depends in, on the space as well. So there are people that are incredibly influential in their spaces that have a less following because it's just um, the niche that they're in. So yeah. kind of an ambiguous, um, an ambiguous term, but um, in terms of your chance, your question, what I would sort of advise for micro influencers that are trying to get brand attention that, that, that they don't have those brands that are um, knocking at their door yet um, mm -hmm. is to just kind of break the traditional model of what we would expect um, because influencer marketing as a discipline is evolving so quickly that there isn't really a traditional model. So kind of just figuring out what's the shortest distance between you and the brands that you're trying to get in front of and, um, and just going after it. Cool. So basically it's a number somewhere in between five to a hundred uh, five thousand to a hundred thousand depending on what niche you're in uh, and you have an audience that's very engaged and interested in what your niche topic is correct that's right that's right cool perfect so anyone anyone out there who's listening if that sounds like you this is the perfect thing that you should be listening to right now so Okay, so let's say you've established that up. Now, how do you go out there and get these influencer deals? Sure. So a lot of our influencer clients, they come to us thinking that there are certain steps that you need to follow in order to be successful at attracting a brand partner or that you need a certain number of followers or that, you know, there's a pitch and a series of meetings or um, that you just need to wait and, and until brands come to you uh, when you're big enough. But we encourage our clients to think about this totally differently and circumvent that entire process, um, mm. which is one of the things that we do with a production company in Los Angeles, The Machine. Um, influencers can be really effective at getting brand attention with hyper-focused, thoughtful, and well-produced content. An influencer who's a brand ambassador is already a consumer of that brand. So understanding the value of themselves as a consumer um, and the value of the content that they're producing um, is, is a great place to start. Uh, what we advise our influencer clients to do if they're really going after a brand is to step up their production level um, mm -hmm. to really focus on their content and basically know that the shortest distance between an influencer and a brand partnership is an incredible story. 
Um, there's one that's unfolding right now that I can't take credit for um, because this person, Charlie Javely, is um, a marketing genius and an incredibly inspirational, amazing guy. Um, but his case study is top of mind because it's unfolding at, like right now as we speak. Um, he produced a video recently that he called a fan-made commercial to get Nike's attention. And his story is so compelling and powerful. He was a music industry CEO and the former manager of Two Chains, who had hit rock bottom at 300 pounds. Um, a brain tumor that he'd been diagnosed with as a child had started to grow and threatened his optic nerve and his spine. He gave up his successful career and moved to California to pursue his childhood dream of becoming an athlete. Um, he ended up reversing his brain tumor naturally, um, losing 125 or 120 pounds, and he's competing in Ironman in New Zealand in two days. Um, so wow. he produced this video, and it was viewed more than a million times. And within, within days, Nike flew Charlie to their campus in Portland. And I, I can't think of a better case study in attracting sponsor attention than Charlie's. Um, and by the way, this is all real, and Charlie's in New Zealand right now. Um, so if you guys are on Instagram, shoot him a note. He's at Charlie on Instagram and wish him good luck. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. To, really yeah. Go out so, there and do um, that. to recap, just in order to get a brand's attention, really focus on the story and the content that you're producing and don't be afraid to call them out. Um, kind of treat yourself as that brand's CMO and what you would think um, a CMO would be looking for in an activation um, and that, and that might move the needle for you. So instead of going out there and pitching brands, instead of going out there and acting like you're going to like create content on their behalf or anything like that, the best thing to do is to create content as if you were already an influencer and to tell the most compelling story you can. Exactly, exactly. To truly be a brand ambassador um, and that's one of the things that was so compelling with, um, with Charlie's story is that he, you know, he had been a Nike brand ambassador since he was a kid. He had stories mm -hmm. going back that long and, um, it resonates with audiences when those stories are authentic. And it's something that we hear about a lot in the marketing, you know, in the marketing sphere of authenticity. Um, but seeing it translate into these types of campaigns and seeing how far reaching they can be, um, is really, is really incredible. Nice. Yeah, I, I think it would be a lot harder to approach like a company, like let's say it's Adidas and your whole life you've never worn Adidas to get them to do a deal with you as opposed to if you've worn Adidas your entire life. I, I mean, right. for me, right. if I was making that brand uh, ambassador decision, I'd probably want to go with the person who's been wearing my brand their entire life as well. And I probably don't know who they are. And if you bring that to my attention, and that kind of really makes sense to really make that work. Yeah, I think understanding just the value of being in, in the shoes of a consumer, um, no pun intended with Nike, but understanding <laughs> what it's like to be a consumer of that brand and understanding those things that would move you as a consumer, um, translating that into a piece of content that uh, a company or brand can use as an asset um, in order to engage consumers like you, that's a really meaningful and powerful place to be. Um, so really what we advise our micro-influencer clients on is just to understand the power of what they, their knowledge as a consumer and how that might translate into, into really being an effective strategy for a brand. Nice. 
So I have a question for you. A lot of people I see, like, they'll start writing about travel, they'll start talking about travel or food or whatever it may be. Then once they start to get, like, an established following, let's just say maybe, like, 10, 15,000 people, they'll go and be like, you know what? I want to take a vacation to Heidi. I want to take a vacation to uh, Iceland. I want to go eat at this fancy restaurant. So they'll go off and they'll send off like emails saying, hey, I'll do a thing for you for free. Or if you feed me or take me on travel for free. What, what mm -hmm. do you think about things like that? Because I, I see that happen a lot. Like, I don't know if it's effective or not. I've only approached like one hotel asking them if... Uh, They'll let me stay at the Maldives for free, but that was because I wanted a really inexpensive way to take my ex out on vacation. <laughs> but that was really the only motivator for that. And that that was like an iffy, iffy where they were like, oh, we might do it, we might not. Then I was like, oh, we broke up, never mind, I don't need it anymore. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, uh, I mean, another situation with another um, hotel, like, I was like, you know what, I love it here. This is so amazing. And all I wanted to do was tell you how great it is, but that was when I was already there. But what do you do in, uh, is that other type of situation effective or is it not really, or how does that work? So I think it's a really good question, and it's something that I see a lot, too. Um, and the answer is it depends on your goals. So there are, you know, travel influencers that just want to be travel influencers, and they're okay, um, they're, you know, they're okay with that sort of dynamic with um, the sponsors that, we're working, that they're working with. Um, but then there are influencers that really want to grow, um, grow into something else. Like they want to leverage that experience that they have at that travel blog and they really want to, you know, bolster their influence and grow into something with really meaningful brand partnerships. Um, and what I would say is just consider that long game. Um, so when I was at the Forbes Women Summit last year, Kim Kardashian was the keynote and she admitted that even though her following um, is through the roof, her actual influence had dwindled because she just said yes to too many endorsement deals. Um, and so whether you're a macro or a micro influencer, you just need to be really vigilant and targeted about what, you know, what brands that you're aligning with. Um, so sort of that blanket strategy of like, I'm going to just reach out to a bunch of places and see, um, which one's going to give me a hotel for free and I'll, you know, I'll endorse them for it is probably not a smart one if you, if you really wanted to grow, um, your influence in the long term. That makes sense. Um, so I'm sure you heard of that recent scandal where that, um, person emailed that one hotel and then the person already had a huge following and they're like, you asked for stuff for free, blah, 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 blah. I would never do something like that. Who's going to pay the hotel staff and all this? Uh, would you say that's an anomaly? Would you like, I, 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 like when I saw it, I was like, maybe that person should research to see like that this person has a significant following before they reached out to them. That was my thought on it. But do you have any other thoughts on like a situation like that? Yeah. So I think that was an interesting situation. First of all, you're exactly right with respect to like, just do your research before you reach out to a company to make sure that whatever it is that you're offering them is valuable. And that's not just in the influencer sphere. That's just across business. Um, because otherwise you could just come off really, um, really tuned us. Um, so, I mean, that's point one. Um, the second thing, though, is like 
it's it's an interesting situation because most of the time um, a hotel wouldn't respond in that way just for fear of like whatever the influencer could say that might come back on them. And that's sort of the situation that happened. Um, But what, you know, ultimately the hotel just got additional exposure through that influencer without having to give her anything for free. Um, (laughs) So it was, it was an interesting case study. I, um, I, I recall hearing about that. Yeah, that one was kind of an anomaly. Like they're like, "Oh, we're going to use this person's influence and gain gain more attraction off that because because we already have influence already." So that was yeah. an interesting spin to that situation, and I think the person probably knew that they could spin it in that way. So kudos to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think um, I think most. Um, I mean, I see it happen a lot where influencers are reaching out. Um, to try to get, you know, things for free or, you know, what's really problematic. And I know that you're familiar with this space too, is when it happens and uh, on the, you know, the publication side um, Mm -hmm. and it's, you know, part of this big fake news um, rhetoric that we have currently is where people are reaching out and trying to leverage their um, media credentials to get free things, which obviously is a violation of ethics. Um, in a different situation, but when news is delivered the same way, when, you know, I'm delivering my articles on Forbes, these social media in the same way that these influencers are delivering their content on social media, it like the lines are blurred. Um, definitely. So I think there are some ethical implications there. Yeah, there definitely are. Uh, Why don't we hop off to a commercial break, and when we get back, we can talk about these um, ethical issues. Uh, You can find me at Mr. Larry Kim on Twitter, and you're at Tina Mokuin on Twitter, right? That's right. Perfect. And we'll see you after this commercial break. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. It's time to unlock some of the best kept secrets in health, wealth, and happiness. Are you ready to live your life to the fullest and hear insider tips from today's experts? Then tune in to The Forbes Factor with celebrity TV host and inspirational icon, Forbes Riley. She's a best-selling author and TV fitness expert, and you know her from QVC and HSN. Now she brings her expert advice and guests to the Voice America Influencers Channel. Tune in live every Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time for The Forbes Factor. We guarantee it will be the best hour of your week. Want to improve your health, business, and life just by listening to a radio show? Well, we can at least move you in the right direction. Listen for Spotlight, the Allison H. Larson Show. Each week, Allison will speak with amazing guests and find out what's changed their lives and how they are changing the lives of others. From beauty to health to business and personal relationships, we're here to inspire you to live your life of passion. Listen every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Influencers Channel channel hear the stories be motivated be inspired join us today voice america influencers this is grow your influence tree to reach leonard kim or his guest call into the program at 1-866-472-5795 
That's 1-866-472-5795. Or drop a line by email to hello at leonardkim.com. Now, back to Grow Your Influence Tree. Hey, everyone. Leonard Kim back here with uh, Tina Mulkling. And if you've been listening to this whole entire segment so far, we've been really talking about the influencer campaigns, how you can be a micro-influencer, really go out there in the line with the brand to get a big deal and get an actual sponsorship where you're able to promote their company and get paid for it. Uh, but what we're moving into right now is kind of the ethics behind everything, like with the new idea of influencers compared to like traditional media, like there's a lot of lines that kind of get blurred. It's like, what's ethical? What's not? What could get you in trouble? What's something that you should be doing? What's something you shouldn't be doing? And Tina wanted to kind of explain and give the details for that. So in case you are going out there and trying to become an influencer, how to really go out there and protect yourself from, one, liability, and two, from damaging your brand as well. Yeah, definitely. So um, what we always advise, and so it's kind of a murky landscape right now with influencers, and um, influencers are getting away with a lot. As Leonard was talking about, um, people can ask for things for free for endorsements that aren't disclosed. And um, when you consider the implications of that in like our media landscape, um, there are definitely some ethical concerns and things that you would want to protect yourself from um, as we move into more regulation. Um, So really at the bottom line of this is what we advise our influencer clients is to just always disclose conflicts of interest um, and always disclose when you're being paid to endorse something. Um, and it's really it's as, as simple as that. Yeah, usually if you go out there and let's say someone's paying you for something and you're just promoting it, I mean, if someone finds out or if you're discovered, then it kind of like hurts the rest of your influence for everything else that you're talking about as well. Because if you were um, talking legitimately about other things, but then you're discovered to like have a paid influence uh, in one situation, they're going to be like, okay, did everyone else pay pay him or her for all the other things that they're saying too, which could kind of like damage your overall reputation. Definitely. And that kind of goes back to what you were saying about just being really vigilant about the brands that you partner with and the endorsements that you make. Um, That's whether or not you're you're being paid for something or just really doing, if you're wanting to monetize influence, um, being cognizant of those relationships that you have with brands um, and those relationships that you're trying to cultivate with brands into the future um, to make sure that whatever you're posting on your social media won't conflict with something that you're, you know, trying to align with in the future. Yeah. So, so definitely when you're planning out your strategy, really be careful of who you're partnering with and who you're not because it's everything that goes around does come around and if you're working with the legitimate companies things that you really don't want to work with and just needing the money those consequences could come and bite you later and on the other hand if you're working with things that you really do want to work with then more things you really do want to work with will come along the lines as well right yeah So I think that kind of covers like most of the ethics and the legal side of everything. Uh, what what topic do you think we should really dive into for influencer marketing as well for micro influencers? Yeah, in terms of other um, other strategies for monetization of micro influence, um, uh, another another idea might be to create a micro a micro influencer cohort. Um, and what mm-hmm. I mean by that is like if you have 
couple thousand followers and you know that you're not going to um, be particularly appealing to the brands that you're trying to go after, um, Mm -hmm. by aligning with a lot of influencers that are in a particular space. Um, So, for example, like if you're trying to align with a wellness brand, you could align with a number of influencers that had those micro-influencer type followings in the wellness space. Um, and then collectively sell your reach um, to get in front of a brand and to think about, you know, thoughtful campaigns and, um, and pitch them as you would any other influencer campaign. So that's one way to sort of expand your reach and um, the dollar value that you can ask for as a micro-influencer. So let's say theoretically you had 10,000 followers and you grabbed 10 other people who had 10,000 followers within the space, you could have 100,000 followers to present to the brand instead. So they look at the bigger number as opposed to the small one. Exactly. And And the cool thing about these micro-influencer cohorts is that um, because each influencer is producing their own content, um, it can be even more appealing to a brand than aligning with one influencer with 100,000 followers um, because it, again, kind of creates this positive feedback loop where all of the influencers in that cohort are making a commitment to engage with each other's content and um, it expands the reach of all that content and it, it basically just generates more assets for the brand than if they were engaging with one influencer um, on their own. That makes a lot of sense. Out of curiosity, when you see someone from the uh, buying side of the influencers going out there and doing something, what do you think are their main objectives when they hire an influencer? Is it to break into their audience or what what do you think of it is? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that it evolves depending on how like the landscape of marketing is evolving. But right now, mm-hmm. the objective seems most frequently to be about telling a compelling story. Um, and I think that's what brands are realizing is moving are moving audiences more than um, sort of these transactional pieces of content is um, telling real authentic stories that matter to the people that matter to them. So it kind of went away from the, uh, look, here's a picture of this makeup brush that you should buy to, oh, this is how I use the makeup brush in my everyday life. That's kind of more what they're looking for now. That's exactly right. That's, that's exactly right. Um, and actually, just that brings up a really cool case study um, of Becca. Do you know uh-huh. Becca Cosmetics, um, which is, I think, one of the number one selling Sephora brands? Um, I so, think okay. that's the only cosmetic I own, which is that um, cream to make sure I don't shine on camera. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So, so coincidentally, I know what it is, but that was from a referral. I didn't go out there and research back or anything. It's just sits there on my counter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, I think it was about a year ago. They Their analytics team noticed that they were getting a spike in sales, um, and they didn't understand why. Like, every once in a while, they'd get the spike in sales. And so they, they traced the data back to this YouTuber that was posting videos using a Becca product. And mm-hmm. um, they realized that she was really moving their audience. So Becca reached out to the influencer and allowed the influencer to basically take control of developing um, her own line of products. And when um, she was able to, to involve her audience in sort of iterating on the product design and by the time they launched it, it sold out, I think, within minutes. Um, it was, it's a phenomenal case study. And it's about that, that storytelling. That's what brands are really wanting to do is to 
be able to involve um, their target consumer in that product iteration and in a compelling enough story um, that will that will really resonate with their audience. Hmm. That's really interesting, especially since they use that data to really go out there and figure out who was where, where the traffic was coming from because like for example, there's this one uh, donut shop near where I live, and I used to always go there for like ham and cheese and jalapeno croissants because they were so amazing. It's called California Donuts, and like I thought I was the only person who go there because only police officers showed up at night. Then all of a sudden, like I stopped going there for like a year, then I came back, then there was like this line of like 20 people outside, and I was like, what just happened? So I, I typed in California Donuts on Google, looked for like news articles, thought it might have hit like a top 10 list and went like around and around and searching. It took me about four to five hours of searching until I finally checked Instagram and I was like, whoa, they have like hundreds of thousands of followers now. And I don't know, somehow they just really made some really good Instagram campaigns, got a loyal audience and like turned super popular overnight. And I'm sure if they didn't do that, they'd probably be out of business today. Yeah, I'm, and you know what's cool about like the climate that we're in right now is if you can make something that is like worthy, Instagrammable, um, then you can create some really interesting campaigns. Like there's a um, there's an ice cream shop in Portland that has lines mm-hmm. around the block a lot of the time just to get a picture of the ice cream just for Instagram. Oh, so it's now. like I feel like that's a, a good opportunity for. Something, something like a donut shop as well, because if they can just pay a little more attention to the aesthetics, there are some yeah. opportunities to to definitely leverage that like Gen Z audience. So when I'm in Portland, we're going to get this ice cream now. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay, yay. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, it's pretty interesting how all of this works. Um, I think one of the key things that you really identified here is if what the companies really want is a compelling story, what do you think are the elements of a compelling story and how can our listeners really go out there and cr- create and draft that compelling story that's going to hook and intrigue the brand? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, I think it starts with truth. Um, the stories are just true. So it's not about like manufacturing what you think that the brand wants to see. Um, it, it starts with understanding what, you know, being in the consumer shoes, what issues a consumer might be having um, and being a, you know, an authentic brand ambassador for that, for that company. Um, a lot of times now we're realizing that if you align with particular social causes, it will move millennial audiences. So that's another component um, that often goes into a good story is just that sort of feel good inspirational type content that is working toward like progressing a certain um, initiative. Um, and, but you know, at the end of the day, the bottom line is a good story. It starts, it starts with the truth. Nice. So basically finding that truth and that baseline and that true experience. Like um, for me, like I figured when I used to tell stories and write online, what I would do for my mindset is I was like, one, I need to write how I talk 
two, I need to pretend that I'm talking to like my friend at the bar and telling them a story one-on-one and write exactly in that exact same way for my story. And uh, that's how my content really took off because I just pretended I was talking to friends at the bar. Do you have any like tips for like how to really communicate that story? Because I know a lot of people when they're like writing or doing something, they'll go and they'll start editing their piece for like hours upon hours upon hours because they want to kind of craft that perfect message and everything and mm-hmm. I, I didn't really do that I just went and done it I'm like oh if there's a typo so it also takes <laughs> but um, do you have like any tips on like how to clearly communicate that story so uh, other people are able to resonate and connect with it like are there key components that need to be in there like relate like what what builds that connection to the audience yeah that's a great question I think first of all it, it's it's so personal when it when we're talking about like conveying that truth for everybody it's different but um in terms of like broad brush strokes the reason that your um content is compelling and this is something that i've noticed too in interacting with you online and reading some of your content is it is it comes off as really genuine and off the cuff um and that's you know that's very much your your brand so i think understanding like what thread um can you draw between your content um what sort of encapsulates what your ethos is online and then just doubling down on that. Like um, not being, not overly thinking about like, what am I going to publish because you won't ever get anything done that way. So just kind of understanding your thesis um, and making sure that your content is true to that. And that's just kind of where it needs to stay. Uh, Do you have, like, any tips on how to figure out how to discover that voice? Like, for me, what I had to do is, like, I took, like, a few writers, like Neil Patel, James Altucher, Tim Ferriss, and a few other people, and just uh, Malcolm Gladwell, and I started writing, like, their books, like, word for word, and just copying them down, just so subconsciously I would probably figure out, like, why they wrote the way they wrote, and then... um, by doing that, like, soon afterwards, my natural voice just, like, kind of emerged somehow. <laughs> um, are, are there any tips like that that you have on how to, like, really discover that natural voice? Because I see a lot of people, like, really struggling with that. Like, they copy, they mimic, they try to, like, um, go with a different style. Like, is there, like, a shortcut way to really go out there and just find that voice of yours real quickly? Yeah, I think it's really tough when you are, um, when it's so personal to you. You know, it's hard to see outside of yourself. Um, So one thing that I suggest is to go and ask other people. Like, when you, what, you know, what's the value that I give to you? And um, when you are looking at my content, what's what's the thread between it? Or um, how do you see, like, my particular lens? And so asking people that you know and trust to weigh in on um, what they feel like is that differentiator for you and your voice is one place. Another place you alluded to is just read a lot of what you sort of are um, basically of influencers or mentors in your space, people that you want to emulate in your professional career. Um, Read a lot, figure out what works for you, what doesn't work for you. Um, and then figure out, like, what your mechanism is for conveying that content. Like, are you a more technical person? Do you like to do it with humor? What, what, is, what works for you? And also, how do you like to receive content? So um, a lot of times we are what, what we like to consume. 
So um, understanding how you like to consume content will help you kind of figure out how you want to write it. Nice. How, how about in regards to like mindset and like personality? Because like just reflecting back on myself, like in 2013 when I started writing publicly, like I was humble, genuine. I was like, I'm a nobody. I don't really care. I'm just going to go out there and write stuff. But in 2012 when I was like practicing my writing, like um, when I read back on it now, I'm like, wow, that sounded very cocky and arrogant. And like, sure, I found these lessons out, but when I think back to like my personality in 2012 too, uh, even though I was like dead broke, making probably only 11 grand for the year, <laughs> I was a very <laughs> cocky and arrogant person. <laughs> and like, um, do you, do you think those personality traits like kind of conveyed through your um, writing and your voice and your messaging? And like, what should you really look out for? And what kind of traits do you think you should like work on if you have those that might be like um, a little like, I, I don't think I would have had that same social media following if I wrote in my 2012 tone. I don't think people would have even liked me back then. I, well, I didn't have any friends, so they didn't. <laughs> so <laughs> That's a great question, too. I think that, you know, like, that arrogance works for some people. Some people have made a whole brand of, of, on that. Um, oh. So I think that it depends on what you're going for and what your audience what resonates with your audience. Um, if that's not what you're going for, or if there are things that you want to look out for, um, like I have, I, I mentioned Adrienne Ashley before, um, and she's a good friend of mine. She's also an influencer. And we joke with each other that we're like our, each other's supervising adults. So we, we understand what our brands are supposed to look like online uh-huh. um, and coming through all of our written content. Um, and so if, if either of us recognizes that there's something that doesn't quite align with our brand or our voices, we'll call each other out on it and kind of just keep each other accountable in that way. So I would just recommend that everybody have their own supervised adult that's kind of looking out for um, those little discrepancies in that tone that they're trying to convey. Huh. That's a great idea. Maybe I should tell my business partner, Ryan, to do that for me so he can keep me in check. <laughs> Yeah, your your content always seems pretty authentic and like straightforward, though. So I think I think you're good. Cool, sounds good. Well, we're gonna have to hop off for another commercial break. Well, fast. We'll be back in a few minutes. You can find me at Mr. Leonard Kim, and you can find Tina at Tina Mulqueen uh, on Twitter. And we'll be back shortly. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. I'm busy and so is my family. Leftover pizza and unhealthy takeout isn't really doing it for us anymore. Just ask my bathroom scale. That all changed when I found Freshly. For less than $10 a meal, Freshly delivers six meals a week, always fresh, never frozen, prepared by top chefs and nutritionists using the best, freshest, gluten-free ingredients. The best part is the menu is always new and fresh, just like the food, and it only takes three minutes for me to prepare breakfast, lunch, or dinner, and there's no messy cleanup and no dishes. 
My family loves the choices and the taste and freshly delivers to my home and my office so I eat healthy all day every day. If you're tired of the same old cardboard delivery and takeout, try out Freshly.com today and save $20 on your first order using coupon code VAH639 at Freshly.com. Your taste buds and your scale will thank you. So save 20 bucks today with coupon code VAH639 at Freshly.com. Change starts here. Change starts now. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. This is Grow Your Influence Tree. To reach Leonard Kim or his guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. Or drop a line by email to hello at leonardkim.com. Now, back to Grow Your Influence Tree. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Leonard Kim here with Tina Milkling. And we've been going over a lot of different things for uh, basically going out there and becoming a micro-influencer and sharing stories with brands that you could potentially get partnerships with. We talked about, one, going out there and actually pretending that you're already the ambassador for the company and sharing your story. Two, how to really mark the lines between what's ethical and what's not. Three, identify what companies you really want long-term relationships with as opposed to like one-and-done relationships that might harm you in the future. Four, we kind of really also summarize what you could do to go out there and tell a compelling story and how to do it the right way. Five, we've talked about how that storytelling is exactly what these uh, people who are hiring influencers are looking for. They're looking for more of that story than your social media following or anything else. And what are we about to hop into now, Tina? Sure. I think um, kind of just to wrap all of this up, one thing that I always like to um, to convey to our clients is that every step of the way, as you are growing your influence in different directions, um, every step of the way is an opportunity to leverage a new asset um, and to get you to the next level. So, for example, I mentioned earlier that we were working on a campaign with Charlie um, Jabbily who is running them Ironman this weekend. Um, Charlie's the one that pitched the story to Nike. Nike flew him up to, um, to their campus within a couple of days after his video went viral. Um, so that activation was really great for us to be able to leverage. Um, and we, we pitched the story to Inc. And now that story's been in Inc. and also in Adweek. And so those media activations now are two additional assets that Charlie has to leverage when he wants to go and reach out for new um, new sponsor opportunities. Um, so that's, you know, kind of just wrapping this up. The, the next step is to make sure that you're leveraging every asset along the way um, to reinforce your influence and to, um, and to continue to bolster that, um, that following. So basically what you're doing is you're taking one win and you're figuring out how to turn that one win into multiple wins, right? That's right. Cool. Exactly. That sounds kind of like what I did with my uh, TEDx talk over at UC Irvine about like why you should let your fears guide you. Like before I even did the talk, all I did was like talk about it. I was like, I'll do a good talk, I'll do a good talk, I'll do a good talk. And it sounded like a broken record, kind of like I was about to get married. And I'm like, yeah, we're engaged, we're engaged, we're engaged, we're engaged, we're having a wedding. <laughs> and then after that, it was like, oh, look, yeah, it happened. Cool. 
And then after it happened, I'm, I, I started telling everyone, yeah, we, we just got married. I just did a talk. I just did a talk. And then, like, by just going out there and talking about it, like, all the time, I was able to take that one TEDx talk and land a Forge feature, an Ink feature, a Mashable feature, and all these other different features in, like, I don't know, like, probably, like, 10 or 15 different places. So if you're able to go out there and communicate that message right and use that win to get more wins, it turns into something that's kind of like out of this world where you're like, oh, I just thought I won that one thing. But in reality, you won it like 15 to 20 different things with this one piece of content. Exactly, exactly. So understanding kind of the way to go about pitching those um, stories to get to the next level with it or to continue broadcasting a message um, mm-hmm. is something else that uh, we, we definitely recommend with influencers that are hoping to grow their um, their brand partnerships. So how would you go about communicating that message? Sure. So, I mean, that um, gets into the public relations aspects of our job. And um, really, it's about, first of all, understanding who to approach with these stories. Like, um, I knew that um, this story is a really interesting case study, or Charlie's story is a really interesting case study um, for influencers that are trying to attract advertisers that would be meaningful um, to Adweek. So Mm -hmm. um, knowing that it would resonate with an audience with um, on Adweek's publication, um, naturally we reached out to that publication with a, with a pitch um, that would, you know, do a lot of the contributors work for them. So we did our research, we put the pitch together, we made it really easy. um, And the, the story is compelling enough to sort of speak for itself. So, also, just understanding that what you have is worth is worth pitching um, helps. So instead of taking the normal approach that most people take, like, oh, I want something in Inc., I want something in Forbes, or I want something in Entrepreneur, or whatever publication it is, it's probably better to go out there and research like how the audience of that publication could benefit from the message, how to craft the message in a way where that audience could get the most takeaways from it, present it to uh, figure out what writer has the closest uh, um, synergies to your specific topic, then um, pitching them like that, right? Yep, that's exactly right. And I think the, the last component, and you've been on the receiving end of these types of pitches before too, I'm sure. So the last component is just making it really easy for the person that you're asking to cover the content to do it. So give them all of the materials that they need, give them all the research that they need, make it easy for them to put a story together, give them the you know digital assets, um, everything that they would need to craft something that's meaningful to their audience. Um, and you know, really just have an understanding of, their audience as well um, so that you don't come off um, like completely missing a mark. Nice. Yeah, that, that completely makes sense. So let's say you're going out there and you're leveraging this one uh, case study and you're getting all this media attention behind that. Like what, what do you do after that? Do you move on to the next client? Do you expand upon it? Like what's the next step after like building all that up? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends. It's a client-by-client cl- client basis, but it depends on the goals of the client. So um, if we're trying to leverage these sort of activations into something larger, then we would just, you know, keep going until we were able to move the needle with the right, um, with the next partnership. Um, 
So, yeah, it just it completely depends on the client. Um, hopefully, you have some sort of overarching goal that you're working toward when you um, are creating these activations and you're figuring out how to leverage them um, for different media opportunities. And then as you're doing that, the messaging within those um, publications that are covering it will help you to get to the next place. So you, it's um, like the quotes that you would insert into these pieces will help you to be able to get in front of your next target. Nice. Uh, so let's go back to the very beginning of everything. So you're going out there, you're pitching, uh, uh, you're creating stories, telling brand stories and all that. Like, How much time and how much energy does it usually take to really go and uh, land that first client? Like let's say you're, you just became a micro-influencer. You just hit 10,000 followers. You're in a niche in um, uh, gardening. <laughs> like, how, how long would it really take someone to go out there and land that first influencer deal just to give, like, a realistic timeline of, like, what someone should kind of expect? Because some people think they'll hit it right away. Some people think it mm-hmm. might take years to go out there and do. Like, what's kind of realistic in this area? It, it completely depends on... Um, not only the niche that the influencer is in, but also on the target, on the brand target. So if they just wanted to align with um, with a smaller company and they're not going after um, huge, uh, huge brand dollars, um, then I would say they could monetize their following at 10,000 pretty quickly, depending on um, how much time they have to put into crafting a meaningful campaign. Um, A lot of this comes back to just understanding um, what's valuable to people and understanding who to pitch. So um, what's going to move the needle basically for the brand partner that you're pitching. You know how to do that. If you know how to craft a meaningful story, um, then obviously you're going to be a lot more effective uh, more quickly than if that's, if that comes more difficult um, or if that's harder for you. So um, I would say it depends on the amount of time that you have to put into crafting the story. It depends on how well you know the audience that you're trying to move. And that's not how well you know the brand. It's how well you know their audience uh, because yeah. that's what's meaningful to them. So, uh, it, it, again, it just it depends on the circumstances. But I'd say that you could monetize a following of 10,000 um, within, you know, months. That's pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. Um, it just, you would have to definitely be targeted about it. Yeah, that's true. So I had another question. Like, some people, they're like, oh, I never thought about becoming an influencer, but then they flip open, like, some uh, piece in, like, an ad week or something, and they find out that Kim Kardashian gets paid, like, millions of dollars for posts, and they're like, wow, I could do that, too. Like, um, I, I mean, if you're Kim Kardashian, you could probably make that kind of money, but... Um, what, what what would you say are, like, the different tiers, like, if you're working with a small company, a medium company, a large company? Like, what, what are the real sponsorship dollars kind of in the range of? That's a great question, too. So, a lot of, of micro-influencers don't make a ton of money, but as you alluded to, they get stuff for free. Um, yeah. So, they'll get in-kind sponsorship. So I would say that's probably your, your first tier. And some of those things are really meaningful. Like a lot of these influencers monetize their followings by going on trips or 
um, by doing stuff that is, that they wanted to do anyway. So it, um, it does make an appreciable impact. Um, so, but I would say that's, that's probably the first tier. Um, on top of that, you could make anywhere from like, there are influencer marketing networks, um, where people make, you know, pennies basically for posting different things. Um, if they pitch to different brands, um, on more collective campaigns, and over time, they could add up into, you know, not very much, but tens of dollars. Um, so I would say, you know, there's that as well. Like, you can, you can collectively participate in campaigns and passively earn um, a little bit of income. And then um, once you're getting into the, where you have a substantial enough following, I would say 10000 or more um, would be substantial enough. And this is, I'm, I'm assuming that these are real followings and that you haven't purchased a following. Um, but then I think you could start getting some real money for that influence, especially if you have an engaged audience, um, depending on, you know, what kind of campaign you're prepared to craft. And um, is that like in the hundreds and the thousands and like the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands? Um, it depends. I would say that if you're talking about going into like making consumer valued content where you're developing a campaign like what Charlie did for Nike, um, you're, you're basically, your value is not necessarily in your following. It's in your campaign. It's in your creative. So for something like that, almost regardless of your following, um, that's worth more than just if you were to post something on your Instagram, for example. So um, it depends on the type of campaign, um, for just transactional things, nobody at 10000 is going to be g- getting very much money for just posting something on their um, Instagram or on their Twitter. They could get, you know, in the tens um, of dollars for something like that. But it, really the money is in the creative. So really if you want to go out there and make uh, actual make actual money with doing these sponsorship deals, what you have to do is like think of that creative campaign that sticks out and has that compelling story. Yes. Yeah. Um, and the other, the other thing to remember is that you can also bolster the amount of money that you're making by putting together a micro-influencer cohort. So you can charge yeah. more um, if you align with other influencers and to come up with, again, a creative campaign that activates each of the influencers within that cohort. So if you made a cohort, you'd probably be making like around hundreds to like thousands? I would say it wouldn't be worth the time um, or research that goes into coming up with a meaningful cohort that would move a particular industry unless you were making in the tens of thousands or more um, range. So that would be on the higher end. So that means when you have that extra creative campaign, it's a lot higher than that, right? (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, if you, you're, you're really just making, you're putting the time and effort into coming up with a creative for the brand. Perfect. Well, I, I wanted to thank you so much for uh, joining us today, Tina, and sharing all this expertise advice. Uh, you can find me at Mr. Larry Kim on Twitter. Uh, Tina, how can people get in touch with you in case they have any questions or anything or they want to hire one of your influencers or work with you personally? Sure. So I'm on Twitter at Tina Molstein, and uh, my email is tina at kindredpr.com. Perfect. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. That's another episode of Grow Your Influence Tree, and we'll see you next week. Thank you. 
Thank you for making us part of your week. Listen for Grow Your Influence Tree with Leonard Kim every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Stand out, stand apart, and become a top influencer. We'll see you here next week.